0: morning well, it's a joy to be here this morning and I hope that's true for you as well. I know my family got sick right in time for Christmas and so uh, it's been a while uh, since uh, been able to enjoy just being together uh, as a body and so I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back in the pulpit and it's, uh, it's exciting to be able to preach this morning. Now I'm not positive of this, but I suspect that the most well-known parable of Jesus in the church today and possibly even outside of the church is the parable of the Good Samaritan. However, our our familiarity with this parable may cause us to think we know the story uh, better than maybe we really do. Uh, Yet what most people know of it, both Christians and non-Christians, is usually just the bare story. Many are familiar with the parable in Luke chapter 10 and in verses uh, 30 to 35 and not the larger context. This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. Many who are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan are not aware of the conversation. They are not aware of the interaction between Jesus and this lawyer, this teacher of the law. Most stories in general, fiction or nonfiction, are a bit ambiguous until they are placed in a particular context. A story, uh, a single story, can mean a lot of different things to different people. Uh, For instance, if this parable is ripped out of its context, which unfortunately is it's often is the case, uh, and we disregard the surrounding verses, and we pay no attention to the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, inevitably we start to read into uh, this text our context. If we do that, then we might come to an interpretation of the parable that might not be true that might not be accurate the morning this morning i want to i think we are going to see that there's more to this passage there's more to the 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 parable of the good samaritan than simply a a call to to love our neighbor it certainly doesn't mean less than that but i promise there's so much more to this story there is so much more so if you have a bible go ahead and turn to luke chapter 10 Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 37, not just verses 30 to 35. We're going to look at those surrounding verses. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage in its entirety this morning. And and I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, Version. And I know you just got settled, just got comfortable. But I would like to ask if you are able to, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed compassion to him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that we can uh, gather together, open it up and study it, Lord. I thank you that it's understandable, that we can, we can know it, we can grasp it. Uh, not just to have head knowledge, Lord, but we can, we can know it so that we can apply it. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just get through a text this morning, but you would allow your text to get through to us, that you would allow it to uh, convict us where we need to be convicted. You would allow it to challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord. I pray that we would... Um, we would not let the familiarity of this passage cause us to, to tune out or be distracted. God, I pray that we would listen to what Jesus has to say, and we wouldn't ignore it. Um, we wouldn't think about it what it might mean for somebody else, but we would consider what these words mean for us. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The passage begins with the lawyer, an expert in the law of God, he stands up to test Jesus, right? An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's, that's his question. That's his question. Then Jesus asks his question. He says, what is written in the law? The lawyer, this expert in the law, this teacher of the law, then answers Jesus' question in verse 27. And only at that point does Jesus answer his question in verse 28. Maybe you're starting to see how this this works. The lawyer asks a question. Jesus responds by asking a question. The lawyer answers Jesus' question. And then Jesus answers the lawyer's question. It's a little out of order than what we might think of in a normal conversation. But that's how this particular dialogue unfolds. This pattern actually is repeated in verse 29. The lawyer wants to justify himself, and so he asks yet another question. He says, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus asks his question, but not before he shares this parable, this this story of of the Good Samaritan. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to set up his own question, which he Sort of ends with there, at the, um, it's not quite the end, but towards the end where he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So then the lawyer, the expert in the law replies and answers Jesus' question. So unless you, you see the parable in its location, in, in, its, in its larger context, of this back and forth uh, dialogue, it's unlikely you'll understand what the parable is doing in the context in, in which it actually is found in the word of God. Now, for the sake of hoping that you can actually track with me this morning, having some semblance of an outline, I'm going to give you a kind of three three parts of this journey this morning. First, we're going to look at the problem. The problem is the conversation before the parable, the part that maybe where we quickly overlook when we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to look at the problem, the questions presented, the questions posed by the lawyer. And then we're going to look at the parable itself, and then hopefully, I'll leave you with the Some points, the point of the parable, that you'll walk away with something to take from this, something to consider, something to chew on and think about uh, in the days and weeks ahead. But first, the problem, the beginning here, the the question. Verse 25 begins with, and behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, Some versions say scribe, maybe your version says teacher of the law. Either way, the, the law which this man taught would have been the law of God. Specifically, he would have been an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Pentateuch. This man was a scholar. He knows his stuff. Had he been in a Clubber, he would have received the Timothy Award or the, um, I think there's one even higher than that. I've already forgotten its its name. Clearly, I didn't get it. Um, uh, But this guy would have had it. His parents, if they had a car, their bumper sticker would have read, my kid is an honor student. You you get the idea. This guy is sharp. He's He's a lawyer. He's a student of the law. He's a teacher of the law. And he stands up to ask a question. In those days, the teacher sat when they were teaching. And so uh, when someone had a question, when a student had a question, they would actually stand out of respect for the teacher. So verse 25 reads, And behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I love here that scripture makes a point of making it absolutely clear to us that this man is insincere. He is not sincere. It says he asked the question to test Jesus. So he stands up out of respect. But it's really it's a half-hearted respect because he is trying to trap Jesus. Now I'm a believer there are no bad questions. Although I've had some over the years that make me question whether that's true. But um, I'm a believer there are no bad questions. I love it when students ask me questions, when the high schoolers have questions, even ones that I don't have the answer to because it sharpens me. I love good questions. I think they're important. I think they're valuable. And I love a willingness to, to humble oneself and actually ask. There are no bad questions. And yet, there are certainly bad motives for questions. And I think, I think we, we could all agree that, and I think this, this passage would make clear, there are bad motives for even really good questions. He's asking a very good question, but for a bad reason. He is trying to bait Jesus. He's trying to trick Jesus. But it is a good question. It's a very interesting question though. As, as you know, right, if, if you inherit something, it's not because you've done something. The, the idea of inheriting is, is, is the idea of you belong to the right family or a certain family. Something's been given to you, not necessarily something you deserve, but something that's been handed to you um, that's not necessarily based on something you have done. And so inheriting has more to do with belonging than it does with doing. And yet this guy puts that, those, both of those concepts in the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? However, it seems though that he wants to, what he really wants to know is how can I have eternal life? How can, I, how can I be accepted by God? Regardless of why he words it the way he does, I think the point is, is clear. He wants to know how he can obtain... A, eternal life most jews have been taught by their rabbis that their their lineage or or their heritage their circumcision uh their ceremonies their obedience to all the various religious traditions and and uh laws were what qualified them to inherit eternal life but clearly there was still a sense of uncertainty among some first century jews and and particularly this gentleman this theologian uh because he's asking this This question, and it's not really this isn't an isolated incident. We see several times throughout the gospels, individuals, sometimes other teachers of the law, ask this very same question: what must I do to have eternal life? And so even though they were taught there was some doubt. There was some some doubt as perhaps the answer they'd been given was true, or perhaps they were. This was part of the trap, to see if Jesus' answer would be the same as what they've been told all their life. So the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with his own question. Jesus is not dodging the question by asking another question. I think as a teacher, I've done that. I'll I'll confess that. Uh, Sometimes if if you get a question you don't know how to answer, to buy yourself some time, you can either ask another question, throw the question back at the whole group, what do you guys think? Um, And meanwhile, you're racing in your head trying to figure out how to answer that question. I'm comfortable sharing that in the second service because uh, my students were in the first service. Um, so they won't know my tricks. Um, but uh, so Jesus isn't just trying to dodge the question. He's trying to clarify. He's trying to get after the heart of this man's question. But more than that, he's trying to get at the heart of this man. He wants to, um, he cares about this man. It's not just a Q&A. He cares about the man asking the question. And so Jesus asks, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer responds in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, with a familiar verse, I'm sure, for many of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That was a perfect summary of the law's moral demands. Again, this guy knew his stuff. It's a a theologically informed answer from an expert in the law. He not only asks good questions, but he gives right answers. He is sharp. He's a sharp guy. But hear me, if, if, you, if, you, um, if you check out for the rest of this morning uh, or you start to get distracted, second service, lunch starts to become a more of a, a thought process. You know, for some people, like, well, oh, what's next? And uh, what are we, where are we going? What are we having? So if I lose you, right, I want you to think about this for a second. You can, you can answer theology questions correctly and still be lost. You can know a whole lot about the Bible. You can know a whole lot about the Bible and not be born again. And you can answer tough Bible-related questions, questions from Jesus, and be completely spiritually dead. That's a sobering reminder for us personally, for those we love, those, uh, uh, those we care about, that what they know does not necessarily mean they are dead. Saved, they are born again. A knowledge of the truth does not equal salvation. Well, in verse 28, Jesus responds to this teacher of the law and says, You have answered correctly. And then he goes on one step further and he says, Do this and you will live. Now, this should cause us to pause for a second. Because this is another way of saying this is, is you want to have eternal life? Do you want to have eternal life? Obey the law. Do this and you will live. Now, I imagine that is sort of, troubling, uh, sort of a troubling response if you're familiar with the rest of Jesus' teachings or if you're familiar with, uh, with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a commonly known verse. Uh, For by grace, you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we read the words, do this and you will live and, and we stop and, and go, well... But, but but, wait, what, what, about, what about grace? What, what about faith? I feel like the cross should probably be in there somewhere, um, but what, what's going on here? Well, verse 28 should cause us to pause, but if you think about it, if you think about it, Jesus, is, his answer is true. If this lawyer could fully obey the law of God perfectly, then he could have eternal life. Unfortunately, as Romans 3.10 tells us, there is no righteous person, not even one. Not you, not me, not this theologically sharp man who's supposed to be an expert in the law, a teacher of the law. None of us. But again, in Romans chapter 3 and later in verse 20, same, same chapter, Paul tells us, by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. We are sinful at our core. And we're unable to justify ourselves by being completely obedient to the law. It's just not going to happen. The the law was designed to reveal our sin. It was not designed to be a ladder to get us to heaven. That is something this man didn't seem to understand even though he taught the law. As theologian J.C. Ryle put it, There is only one door, one bridge, one ladder between earth and heaven, the crucified Son of God. There's only one ladder to heaven, and it's not the law. The painful irony is that this teacher of the law does not seem to have a a knowledge of his own sin. One of the purposes of the law was to make our utter inability to obtain perfection just painfully clear. Had this man understood his sin, he would have responded... Very differently. When Jesus, did, when Jesus said do this and you will live, he should have responded with, with despair. He should have responded with confusion. He should have said, but I, I can't. I, I can't love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength and all of my mind all of the time. I can't do that. I've already failed at that today and yesterday and the day before that. I I can't, I can't do that. You should have heard these words from Jesus and thought, who? Who could possibly love the Father with all of their heart, with all of their soul, all of their strength, and all of their mind, all of the time? Who could possibly do that? Who could possibly love like that? Had the lawyer responded with, with an admission of guilt or had he experienced an ounce of conviction or even if there was an indication of humility, this conversation may have looked a little bit more like John chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus, another teacher of the law, asked questions about, you guessed it, eternal life, right? Nicodemus has very similar questions. It's a very similar conversation topic in John chapter 3 and another well-known passage with a very well-known verse, and in John chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus says, Everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. He doesn't say, Everyone who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind, and loves their neighbor as themselves. He says, Believe. He reiterates this in the following verse with the well-known, beautiful, life-saving words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so we're left thinking, well, which is it? Do this and you will live? Or, or believe this and you will have eternal life? I think the answer will become clear as we continue. But, but take note here. Jesus handles these situations differently because the questions had different motives. Nicodemus has every appearance it, it, from what we can see from this passage. It appears to be genuine curiosity. He appears to actually be seeking out answers. He wants to learn. He wants to, to know these answers to the questions regarding eternal life. And Nicodemus appears to be genuinely curious Meanwhile, the lawyer, on the other hand, it, just, it tells us he's trying to test Jesus. And Jesus still loves this man. He loves this man. He wants this lawyer to see his own sinfulness. He wants this man to see he cannot earn eternal life. And so he shows him the bar in order to make it clear he cannot reach it. He cannot reach it. But as far as we can tell, that is not what happens in this man's heart. The lawyer then fires back with yet another question. Verse 29 says, but wanting to justify himself. I'm going to stop there for a second. This, this statement makes it clear he is not getting it. Uh, he is not tracking with where Jesus is going. He's not getting what Jesus is trying to communicate to him. He still doesn't understand he's a sinner. He can't reach the bar. He can't climb the ladder. He cannot justify himself. I just read Romans 3.20, which begins with, by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. Can you imagine the grief, <laughs> the grief that Jesus must have felt when he heard this response? When he, when he saw this, this this trying to justify himself, with this, just seeing that, seeing him trying to, to declare himself righteous. Just imagine. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus must have been grieved not only by what he said, but but by what he didn't say. Now, remember the first part of the commandment. The part probably we, again, this is a familiar passage. I'm sure you're, probably many of you could say it from memory. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This lawyer doesn't have a follow-up question on that commandment. Most scholars believe that this man probably believed that he checked that box. Many conservative Jews in Jesus' day thought they really could love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength by following the formal demands of the law. And so he, he probably thought he checked that box. In fact, a theologian, Professor D.A. Carson, suggests that he probably thought to himself, I'm pretty good at observing the kosher food laws. And I follow the prescriptions of the, the great feasts and go to the temple at the appropriate times. And I understand the law, I study it, I, I memorize the entire Old Testament. A man like this in Jesus' day would have memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew and a body of tradition about twice as long all over again. He was a diligent student. He knew his stuff. And so he probably thought the loving God half, that part of it, I get it. I've done it. I'm doing it. I just need to nail down who, who qualifies as my neighbor so I can check that box too. And we see that in the text. In verse 29, it says, wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to declare himself righteous. And Jesus is going to show him exactly what he would need to do in an effort to show him he can't do it. He absolutely can't do it. He cannot justify himself. But instead of saying, I can't do that Instead of hearing these words from Jesus and saying, well, I can't do that. I, I've never loved anyone perfectly in my entire life. Even the people I love the most, there are times where I, I fail. I fail to show them love. I, I fail to, to love them in a moment. And maybe it's, it's short. It's just a moment. But I, I don't do this all of the time. Perfect love all the time. Who could possibly love their neighbor Perfectly. And that's not just my, the people I love the most, but my, my neighbor. Who could possibly love their neighbor perfectly every day, all the time? Who could possibly do that? Who could possibly love like that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't ask, he doesn't ask those questions. He asks, who is my neighbor? Now, this time, it's a traditional rabbinical and popular interpretation of Leviticus 19.18, which uh, is where this, uh, this passage references to. Uh, says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." The popular rabbinical interpretation of this was, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." That was what most rabbis taught their students. Is what the meaning of Leviticus 19:18. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expresses this. He said, "You know, basically, some of you have heard this, and he says uh, that does not mean what you think it means. That that passage is that's not what that's saying." And Jesus clarifies that in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, if you, if you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, if that's the proper interpretation, if, if the rabbis had it right, and, and Leviticus 19, 18 meant to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, think about how that might play out practically. Then you're, you're free to hate your enemy. If you're free to hate your enemy, you're relieved from the duty of loving anyone who you declare to be your enemy. So under that interpretation, you have no legal or moral obligation to love anyone that you don't really want to love is there someone in your life that's hard to love put them in the enemy category uh, you don't have to worry about loving them you just they're an enemy You're, you you all obligation to love them is now gone you can just put them they're an enemy i don't need to worry about it better yet make everyone your enemy and then you can just don't you don't have to worry about the whole loving people thing you just just that, that that's done and over with if everyone's your enemy then You don't even have to care about loving your neighbor. You've just put everybody in the the enemy category. Clearly, that is not a good interpretation. But I imagine they taught that for quite some time before Jesus came on the scene. Now, Matthew 5 and um, verse 34 to uh, 43, I'm sorry, to 44, And Sermon on Mount Jesus addresses this. You're probably familiar with this passage as well. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it appears that this lawyer was not in attendance for the Sermon on the Mount. He, he didn't get the memo. He, he didn't get the notes. Uh, he missed this. Um, however, this man was a teacher of the law and he should have known, uh, Le- he did know Leviticus 19.18. He just had an incorrect, likely had an incorrect interpretation of the passage. He should have still known, though, Leviticus 19, verses 33 to 34. Same Same chapter. So, right after it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, we see that 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 love is to be extended beyond the neighbor. It says this When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, even way back in Leviticus, we see this principle of neighborly love is extended beyond neighbors. It's extended to strangers. Nevertheless, in verse 29, this man, wanting to narrow maybe his view of who he had to love or really get a precise understanding of that, probably to check that box, he says this, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor. So that's, that's the problem. That's the, it's the issue that's presented. That's, those are the, the, the questions that lead up to the story. And so we have the problem, now we kind of shift to the parable itself, the more known, the more well-known part of this passage that I'm sure, uh, whether you've grown up in the church or whether you're new, you probably have some familiarity with, with, with these verses. But the beginning of the story, beginning of the story would have been unsurprising. Uh, what we have is a, a typical situation that Jesus' li- uh, listeners would have been familiar with. They might have even known somebody who's, who's had this experience, unfortunately. There is a specific path or route one would take when leaving Jerusalem and heading to Jericho. Jesus' listeners, including this lawyer, would have been familiar with this route. The path had a descent of about 3,300 feet, over 17 miles. You're, you're going down, and it was, notoriously, uh, uh, it was notorious for attracting thieves. And so people would, would journey, would make this journey, um, and there were, there were no homes, there were few places to stop, it was relatively uninhabited, because it was without vegetation, mostly limestone cliffs and gullies, it's just not a pretty place, it's not the kind of place you'd want to build a home or a community, it was a, strictly a, a, place, a path to get you from one place to another. It was a path that was sometimes referred to in Bible times as the path of blood. And although it's not entirely clear as to how it got that name based on stories like this one, it would seem as though it was because it was an unsafe path. Um, It was a narrow path, a path that had cliffs. And so whether it was the, the thieves or whether it was falling off the cliff, it was a dangerous path to take. And so from time to time, thieves hiding behind the limestone rocks robbed those traveling the road. And so the violent assault and robbery in verse 30 is actually the most normal part of this story. It's the, it's the most unsurprising. And for us, you know, not that um, we might think, and, and, and it's, we should be surprised by violence in some ways. But, but this is actually, in this case, this, this particular passage, the violence is not surprising. The, the, the robbery is, is typical. It's normal. Uh, nothing shocking has taken place in the initial verse. But it's in verse 31 and 32 that we begin to, to see something a little bit unexpected. In verse 31, 32, Jesus tells us that two religious men passed by, two religious men, a priest and a Levite. And by law, these men were not allowed to touch a corpse, not allowed to touch a corpse. Helping a man who, who as this passage says, was half dead, probably looked dead or possibly was about to die would have been risky. That would have been a risky move for them. If they, if they had helped and he was dead or died while they were caring for him, they would be considered unclean. They would also uh, bear some responsibility financially regarding medical bills. If if they helped him, they would want to probably see it through. They'd feel obligated to do that. And and even worse, if he died on them, uh, they would incur the burial costs um, if they decided to help. And so if they did stop, it could potentially cost them professionally by being temporarily or even permanently prohibited from priestly and Levitical services. It definitely would cost them financially. Of course, the robbed and wounded man was not quite dead but for a priest or a, a Levite to get off of his donkey and, and take a stick and kind of poke the man, um, you know, so he didn't get on clean right away. But to, to poke him, see if there was life, to see if there was movement, that's, that's risky. That, that would be at personal expense. It would cost them something, whether it be the following weeks and time ahead to be able to minister to other people. And, and, but it's unclear, as though, it's unclear, though, as to why they didn't stop. Uh, We can assume their motives. Uh, They might have been afraid the attackers were still nearby. Uh, Maybe they were just hard-hearted. Maybe they believed this man was uh, receiving judgment from God. and They didn't want to intervene. They didn't want to get in the way of what God was doing. Perhaps they were just too conceited. Too conceited uh, as religious leaders to stoop down and help a wounded victim. Well, we'll, We'll never know. It doesn't really matter what their motives are. The fact is they showed no mercy. They showed no mercy, they showed no compassion, they showed no love. The Greek text uses a a verb found nowhere in Scripture other than in verses 31 and 32. And I'll put it on the screen so that I don't have to pronounce it. Um, Frankly, I can't. I took Greek in college. Uh, I even took a few extra classes so I could minor in it, thinking that would help me. Uh, It didn't. Um, And uh, Greek is very much like the law for me. It, It reveals my inadequacies. It reveals, it humbles me. And, and shows me how I don't measure up, or I fail to measure up. But, uh, so I'm just putting it on the screen, and, and, and you know what, I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce it. When you go to Hunan after church, um, I, know, I know some of you will. Uh, and uh, when you go there and you're waiting for your egg rolls, right, you can take turns trying to pronounce it um, while you're waiting. So, um, but there it is. The, I say this because the first four letters there, the anti, right, the anti-prefix means opposite, it means opposite and it suggests a deliberate moving away from the injured man. It's not just turning your head, uh, turning your eyes away from something. This is an actual physical turning of your body, changing a direction, changing your path to get around this guy. This is a strategic change in course in order to avoid this man. And so whether you can pronounce this word or not, I think we all get this. And I think some of us have probably done this, maybe not to somebody who is half dead, but maybe we've done this at church. Uh, you know, I, you see that person in the lobby, and for whatever reason, you're just, you're just, you're just not ready for it. Uh, you, you know, there's going to be a conversation that maybe you're not prepared for, maybe you don't have time for. Uh, and so maybe you see them, and so you decide to go in the bathroom in uh, the bathroom has two entrances and two exits, right? So you go in one way and then you go out a different way, and you've strategically not seen them, right? You you, you lost them, right? And and some of you maybe you haven't used that move, but you're like, thanks. Uh, that's um, no. Uh, <laughs> we we know. Right? I think I think we've we've done things like this before, where we we've we've seen somebody, we've seen a need, we've seen a hurt, and maybe maybe we justified it to ourselves for various different reasons. But we, we changed course. Right? And so whether you can pronounce the word or not, I think we kind of get the idea of what's going on here. The amazing thing is that this, this is a narrow road. They didn't just take another path. They, they, they would have had to either, uh, it, t- it took a lot of work to go around somebody when you're on a narrow path. And yet that's what we see in the religious... Leaders. Now, this part of the story was still unexpected. And I say that because some people today might not find this behavior all that uh, surprising from religious leaders. Uh, more than ever, people are questioning those who are in authority, and especially those who are in some form of religious authority. And in some cases, rightfully so. A, a combination of abusive, uh, abusive leadership, moral failures have caused many today to not expect much out of their religious leaders. And be that as it may, in Jesus' day, people still had a high view of religious leaders. This was likely much more surprising to them than it may be for, for you or me. However, verse 33 is the most surprising or unexpected part of the story. So it's, it's, it's increasing in the surprises here as we work through the passage. You see people today now think of Samaritans as the good guys. In fact, when, if you were to do a word association type of a game and I said Samaritan, what word do you think of when you think of Samaritan? Many of you probably think good, right? Good Samaritan, it's such a popular parable. It's, been, uh, it's become so well known over the years that we associate the word good with Samaritan, Samaritan with good, and we, we sometimes maybe neglect to realize the amount of hatred that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Jews were not, or Samaritans were not viewed as the good guys. In this particular time period. They were not, the phrase good Samaritan is one that if you were to time travel back into this time period and you said that phrase it would probably stun a Jew. The words good Samaritan would be astonishing. Samaritans were enemies, they were looked down on, they were heretics. Time does not permit me for for me to go into why this was the case but believe me when I say there was bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. However, this is where the most surprising part of the story comes in. You see, there's a violent beating on the road. That's actually expected. Priest and Levi passing by without helping. That's unexpected. A Samaritan helping the beaten man. That's unexpected and downright shocking. But then he goes one step further, really. He's not just helping the man. He helps him in an extravagant way. It's over the top. As a result, every verse is a little bit more shocking than the one before it in this passage. It gets a little bit more shocking, a little bit more surprising. So whatever the Samaritan used, right, for for bandages came out of his own bag or from his own clothes. This guy was robbed. So he doesn't just bandage him up and go on his way. Jesus says he he set him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a a mule. It's the Samaritan's own animal. The the Samaritan now walks while the injured man is riding his donkey. This is costing him time to stop and to, to help and bandage this man. It's also costing him time because he's likely going slower. Uh, traveling with this injured man while he's walking while the other man's riding his donkey. It's, it's costing him his possessions, which is, is, he is using to bandage the man. And, and then he gets to the inn, and it costs him financially. At that point, he's not done yet. He, gives him, uh, he, he pays the bill for him to stay at the inn. And again, it, it just keeps getting more, more shocking, or at least it would have been to the original listeners, because innkeepers were nefarious individuals They were often considered untrustworthy people. And yet, we see surprising care lavished on this victim when we consider the statement that the Samaritan makes to the innkeeper. Innkeepers did not have a good reputation. And for the Samaritan to promise to pay him anything he will claim to have spent on the suffering man, that's risky. He could have easily been taken advantage of by the innkeeper. It was actually likely to, in some cases, to be taken advantage of by the innkeeper. And yet the Samaritan did not do this work of love, of charity, love and charity on a reciprocal basis. There's no evidence to suggest he was wanting something in return. There's no evidence to suggest that he even had any concept of whether this guy would ever thank him or show any sign of gratitude. Samaritan's actions presented a genuine sacrifice of money, possessions, risk of health and safety. Many hours of loving, watchful watchful care. The Samaritan shockingly displays selfless and extravagant love to the hurting man. And after sharing this story, Jesus responds with his question to the lawyer Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Remember, the man asked, Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story, then he flips the question and asks, Which one of these men were a neighbor? And the lawyer responds saying, the one who showed compassion to him. And it's kind of like he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. I mean, it's, a, it's an important detail here. Jesus didn't just say it was a random person. He, didn't, he, he specifically said Samaritan. And I think it's intentional that this guy doesn't say Samaritan. It's like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's <clears throat> this, this, this is the last guy. The last guy helped him out. Now I'm from, I'm going to make a few enemies here. Um, I'm from the great state of Ohio, uh, and uh, you're probably not used to hearing the word great in front of Ohio, um, but I, I'm from Ohio, and uh, I am, as a result, I am a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes. Ohio, right? There you go. <laughs> I heard it. I don't know who that was, but I, I love the Buckeyes, right? I love the Buckeyes, and I, I, but I'm just a fan, right? I have friends. I have friends, uh, and maybe you have friends like this, too, where it's a little bit more of a religion. Uh, it's a little more of a religion, and they grieve. They grieve the losses uh, when they come harder over a period of time. It's the, the next day comes, and it's maybe maybe they take off the day of work, and they're just not. They're just they're they're, they're processing that. I, I have friends that uh, it's more than just a, than just being a fan, and I I'm a pretty strong fan, but but I, they they won't even say Michigan, right? And maybe you've heard, and, and, I, and sometimes, uh, you know, even those who are just fans will joke around too at this, but they'll say that the team up north, maybe you've heard this, right? Uh, they, they won't even say Michigan, it's, it's the team up north, because that, that hatred or rivalry runs so deep, you just don't even want to say the name. That's the picture I have when I read the lawyer's words here. Right. Jesus says, well, which one was the neighbor? This is the one who showed compassion to him. It's like he can't even bring himself to admit that it was a Samaritan that got it right. It was a Samaritan that showed neighborly love. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, this passage is more than a mere reminder to love our neighbor, but it certainly doesn't mean less than that. And I think Pastor John MacArthur uh, words here are helpful. Uh, I think he gets after, I think, a summary here of, of what this passage is really getting after. It says, this is not a lesson for children about how to share their toys and be kind to the, the new kid in class. This was a story told to a religious nonbeliever, a self-righteous man, as an evangelistic effort to bring him to the true sense of his sinfulness and his need for mercy. It was Jesus' appeal to a doomed but deeply religious soul. Jesus was urging the man to wake up and see how lost he really was. And so I want to kind of leave you with the, the so what, the, the point. You know, the problem, there's the parable. And so what do, what, do, what do we take away from this? Well, first and foremost, this parable should help us see how utterly incapable we are of earning our way to heaven. And there's a subtle warning here that we can have great theological knowledge and still be lost. We can have great theological knowledge and still be lost. The man was an expert in the law, but, but he was dead in his trespasses and sin. Until one realizes they are spiritually dead, they cannot have new life in Christ. We cannot receive the free gift of God through Jesus Christ without first understanding the wages of sin is death. Now this story ends with no indication of repentance. The passage concludes with no indication that this lawyer grasped his sinfulness in need of a Savior. Friends, I pray that that would not be true of your story. That would not be true of you. Repent and believe in the gospel. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot do it. You can't love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind all of the time. You can't do it. I can't do it. So let's ask the questions the lawyer should have asked. Who could possibly love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength and all of their mind all of the time? Who could possibly do that? Who could possibly love like that? Who could possibly love their neighbor perfectly every day, all day, all the time? Who could possibly live like that? John 14, 31, Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus can do that. Jesus did that only Jesus can do that perfect obedience to the father perfect love for the father perfect love for us and it's it's that perfect obedience and that perfect love that makes him the perfect sacrifice for our sin the perfect substitute to die the death that we deserve repent and believe the gospel and you may be found in him not having a righteousness of your own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ You cannot justify yourself before God, but you can be declared righteous through Christ. First and foremost, this parable should help us see how utterly incapable we are of earning our way to heaven. It should remind us that Bible knowledge does not equal salvation. But secondly, we should be humbled by the fact that we can be deeply involved in religious activity and completely lack compassion for our neighbor. The warning here, it's it's, it's not as subtle, is that we can be deeply involved in church. And still lack neighborly love. Jesus could have driven home the point about compassion for the needy without verses 31 and 32. Think about that. We should ask, why did he include the priest and the Levite? The Samaritan's extravagant love was already shocking enough. What he did was the example. So why include the priest and the Levite? Was it, was it just to create suspense that when a priest walked by and that would surprise them and go, oh, wow, if not the priest, then who? And then the Levite walks by and it's like, wow, not the Levite. Is it, was it just a suspense? Was it just because Jesus is a master teacher and he's just adding that for, to maybe make the story a little longer? We have to ask, why did he include the priest and the Levite? In Jewish culture, first century Jewish culture, they should have been the very ones to offer help. Friends, the lawyer shows us that we can have right answers and still be lost, but the priests and the Levites show us that that we can be actively engaged in the work of God, active in ministry, perhaps active at Calvary Bible Church. And still completely fail to show compassion to our neighbor. Great theological knowledge does not equal salvation and abundance of religious activity does not equal love for our neighbors. Thirdly, for those of us that are Christians, we should, ask, we should seek to love like Christ. And the Good Samaritan gives us a helpful picture of extravagant love. As I've already mentioned, it would be far too simplistic to say that Jesus' main point is about showing kindness to strangers. Rather, he told this story to illustrate how far we all fall short of what God's law actually demands. He is explaining why all our good works and religious merit are never sufficient to gain favor with God. The parable shows us we can have great theological knowledge and be lost and we can be actively engaged in religious activity and completely lack compassion. But it also, it also shows us a picture of practical love. For the Good Samaritan, neighborly love involves a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of possessions, a sacrifice of finances. Jesus paints a picture of a man who likely crossed religious lines and cultural lines. He describes love in terms of giving. We see compassion as not just a feeling. It's not just something he he felt, but, but the compassion is mentioned and then it's followed by action. He does something with that compassion, extravagant action. He goes above and beyond, over the top. And when others moved away, when others went around this man, Jesus gives a picture of love that moves towards the hurting. It moves towards the needy. It moves towards the messy. And I think all of us would do well to to pray. To pray and plead, God, God, help me to love a little bit more like that. For those of you here that are Christians, you're saved. This Don't let this example go to waste. Don't let this, this picture be lost on you. Pray, God, help me to love a little bit more like that. Help me to love a little bit more like your son loves me. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for that right now, and then I believe we'll end in a song. me Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I pray you would forgive us for the for how we try to maybe earn our way to you, how we try to justify ourselves, Lord. And I pray that we become more and more aware of our own sinfulness, more and more aware of our inability to keep keep the law's commands. But in that, Lord, that you would increase our joy in knowing that that's why you sent Jesus to die for us. So that he could do it in our place. That he could die on the cross and take on our sin in our place, the death we deserve, Lord. I pray if anyone in here doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, it hasn't put their trust in you, maybe like the lawyer, trying to justify themselves. Lord, I pray today would be the day that they'd realize they can't reach the bar. And they'd put their trust and faith in Christ as their Savior. God, I pray for the rest of us, God, that, that if we've already put our trust in Christ, that we would we would grow in our ability to love, that we would love extravagantly, that we wouldn't love the bare minimum, we wouldn't love just a select group of people, but we would love extravagantly to the to, anyone that you put in our path. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day. In your name we pray, amen.